Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I get to speak with uh, Manu S. Pillai, who is a doctoral candidate at King's College London, will be speaking on his uh, brand new publication, False Allies, India's Maharajas in the Age of Ravi Verma. Uh, Manu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So how did you manage to write a book while you were in the middle of a PhD program? Well, I, I wish this were the only one I've, I've had. Uh, usually it's the other way around, right? People do their PhDs and then they write books. In my case, um, I, I got onto a very interesting uh, bit of ignored history when I was about 18, 19 years old. And that culminated six years later in my first book. And I still remember the launch, uh, the the chief guest in Delhi said that, you know, there should have been a PhD thesis, which is when it struck me that perhaps I should have done it the other way around. But I had already published before I did my thesis. And then, of course, I I registered for my PhD and I've been doing it for the last few years. And of course, in the middle of it, you know, there's uh, these interesting bits of research that come along the way. There's interesting stories to tell. There's, you know, there's plenty to do. So I, I don't know, the books just ended up happening. And of course, I'm now working on my thesis, but um, this, these, these four books that have come prior to the thesis, all of them, I think, you know, are books that I can be reasonably proud of. But let's see, hopefully the thesis will lend its own kind of academic quality to the next one. Well, it's, it's a fascinating path that you've embarked on, uh, perhaps the other way around compared to um, typical PhD students. Nevertheless, it sounds like it's happened exactly in the order that uh, that works for you. So perfect. Um, <laughs> so this book, um, what's this book about? So the book is about, you know, breaking the stereotypes that exist around Maharajas in India, because the fact is they govern 40% of the Indian subcontinent. And yes, when you generally think of the Maharajas, you think of elephants and dancing girls, and you think of these autocrats who arbitrarily sat on silk cushions and issued orders that people had no option but to obey. And yet, you know, as you if you if you dig in a little deeper, you start discovering that the world of the princes was far more complex. There was a lot more happening in the princely states. And most importantly, you can't really make sense of modern Indian history in courts unless you actually do pay attention to the 40% of India that was not under uh, direct British rule, but was under what, what was often called indirect rule where it was through the Rajas that the British retained some kind of control over the states. But within the states, the, the, the Rajas were quite powerful. A lot of them were not arbitrary rulers for the simple reason that there were multiple power interests and balances of power to manage. There were bureaucrats, there were you know peasant groupings, there were people at factions at court. It wasn't as though the Raja had complete power, which meant that each of these princely states has an interesting internal story. It can tell us about kingship. It can tell us about state formation in India. It can tell us about religious identities, caste identities, and a whole lot more. Uh, so the five states that I cover in it in, in this book, you know, each of them has a fairly distinct history, uh, whether it's the background of the royal families, the political pressures they deal with, etc. And all of them also, as I'd like to argue in the book, uh, they also found ways to resist colonial penetration. It wasn't as though they were meek and submissive uh, with the Raj. On the contrary, there was always a kind of pushback. Of course, the British were the more powerful party, so the British often got their way. 
But even so, it wasn't as though the Rajas were entirely uh, submissive. They were capable of finding innovative and interesting ways of, of standing up to the might of the British Empire. So who is Ravi Varma? Ravi Varma is a celebrated 19th century painter. He died in 1906. So most of his work was in the final two or three decades of the, of the 19th century. He, I chose him as a sort of connecting thread through the book, a very slender connecting thread, because I wanted something, a kind of constant between all the chapters. And Ravi Varma is somebody who was born in a princely state called Travancore on the, on the southwest coast of India. He was, in fact, descended from Rajas himself and related to royalty. His granddaughters later themselves became Maharani's. He uh, became a painter. He, he, you know, although he came out of an aristocratic background, which was very unusual for painters in those days, he had a passion for art and started painting in the darbar of the Travancore Maharaja. Uh, about after 18, 19 years at that darbar, he ends up leaving the state. And then over the next 25 odd years, you find this man traveling through various parts of India, serving or rather being commissioned to paint in various princely courts. And I thought that would make for an interesting way to select princely states because there are about 562 princely states officially. Of course, most of them were tiny and they don't really count as states. But even taking the bigger ones, you have about 100. And I didn't want to do a general textbook on, on all 100. So I thought it would make better sense to shortlist a few and, and study them in detail. And Ravi Varma enabled that process because I was able to track his journeys and peregrinations and pick up five states that you know he went to and he worked in. And he did portraits of for their rulers and use those portraits and use his travels to uh, look at these states a little bit more in depth rather than doing a generic study of all 100 big princely states. I did find it quite a fascinating um, manner in which to curate the data by looking at this um, this very famous Indian artist. So were you looking at his uh, depictions primarily? What were, what were your uh, sources for this book? Sources were several, actually. On the one hand, there is plenty of oral history in the sense that because these Rajas could be fairly colorful and interesting people, there were, there's, a, there's a whole wealth of oral material that's passed down in stories and anecdotes and so on. Of course, many of them, these are apocryphal, but their very existence also signals at, at some kind of message that's being communicated. Then, of course, there's plenty of archival material. You know, there's the usual sources from the British archives. You have various palace sources, for example. You've got the state records themselves. So the Travancore government, for example, from the 1860s, used to publish these very detailed administrative reports every year, essentially as a means to both impress the British with the kind of, in quotes, progress that was underway in the state, but also to bombard them with so much data that they wouldn't, uh, find an excuse to come and interfere in the Travancore government's internal affairs. So, and, and these go back all the way to the 1860s. You've got decades and decades and decades of, of published material there, official publications. You've got official court histories. You've got you know, counter histories written by marginalized classes and castes. You've got the gender aspect of it. You've got parliamentary reports. You've got legal uh, cases that these Rajas fought and the papers around those. And of course, there's a huge archive of press material because a lot of these conversations were also sometimes conducted uh, through the medium of the press. And uh, a, a lot of nationalists in the late 19th century, for instance, were deeply invested in the autonomy of the princely states. And they, every time the British were seen to interfere in a certain state, you'd find the nationalist press uh, taking up the cause of that ruler, that state, and trying to uh, help them and protect them. So that, that the newspaper archive, therefore, was also pretty interesting. And so it was by cobbling together multiple sources like this that I was able to construct the narrative. Finally, of course, Ravi Varma's paintings also helped because he was also uh, this, an Indian painter who painted in the Western academic style. 
So he was combining Indian subjects, including mythological themes in his other works, with a Western style of painting. And in his depiction of the Rajas, you could often sense a desire to present them as modern men of the world, because the cliche was that the Rajas were backward and had no idea what modernity was all about. Whereas he helped them construct a self-image for themselves, which at the one, on the one hand did not cut off from tradition, while on the other hand also laying stake to modernity. So there's, uh, you know, the, the portraits of the Rajas, most of them that you see in the book, you see certain familiar elements where you've got a temple in the background, for example, uh, but you also have English books, which are on a desk you know, on which the Rajas' hand will, will, will rest. So all of these were, were methods by which modernity and their self-image was constructed and communicated. So there again, the painter wasn't merely depicting their likeness. He was also actively helping them frame this, this whole idea of a princely modernity and their princely avatars for a public audience. So this impulse to, 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 to modernize the, the image or presentation of the Maharajas, was this on behalf, uh, was the impetus for that um, Ravi Varma himself, or was this something that they themselves wanted to accomplish? I think royal portraiture in any case is about rulers wanting to depict an idealized image of themselves. In the 19th century, the, the, the concept of the idealized changes because of modernity and colonialism and certain racial dynamics, etc. So everybody's got to conspicuously start looking modern. Uh, but I think Ravi Varma, it, it's possible that my, my own sense is that the first court he worked in, which is Travancore, we had this ruler called Ailyam Tirnal, who very consciously did craft his image. So Ailyam Tirnal lived, ruled from the 1860s till about 1880. Those 20 years were, were his reign. And in the beginning, you find, you know, in the old court miniatures, the Persian style of long robes and all of that. But Ailim Tirnal also picks up the English language. He's well-educated in a Western style. And he starts underdressing quite consciously. He doesn't like wearing jewels. He wears very simple clothes, almost as though he's consciously constructing this business-like image because he doesn't want uh, the British resident or, or colonial commentators describing him as some kind of a tropical exhibit. He's not an exotic installation. He wants to show himself as an active ruler. And with Ailim Tirnal, we see this kind of fashioning of image happening consciously. And it was under his patronage that Ravi Varma worked. And Ravi Varma was then uh, you know, invited to various other states where he would repeat the formula. And obviously, it would be done, I think, with uh, the, the, the cooperation and the active support of the rulers he was painting. And, and you see this, for example, the one state uh, which he painted, uh, which was the opposite of most of the paintings he did, which was Udaipur or Mewar in Rajasthan. Uh, there, the ruler did not want a modern image. He wanted Ravi Varma's modern academic realism, and he wanted that style of portraiture. But in the way the ruler dressed, he didn't wear his English uh, colonial decorations. He didn't wear uh, the usual clothes that were associated with uh, with royalty on the, I mean, in the 19th century, which was an achkan and trousers. On the contrary, he posed with a sword in his hand and a shield in the other, uh, wearing his long Angarkha robes, which was what the Rajputs wore for centuries before. So he very defiantly refused to give up his traditional identity. But most other rulers did. Uh, yeah, one of the reasons they, they preferred Ravi Varma was that he could not only flatter their, their image but and, and their sort of appearance, but also give them that kind of modern uh, look for a modern audience. Why is the book called False Allies? The book is called False Allies because in general, the, the Raj presented the Maharajas and the princes of India in two ways. One was, of course, caricature, which was for their own narrative, which was that, you know, these are natives, they're good for nothing, they can't really govern themselves. 
that was of course the, the justification british ruled india which is why the british could justify their presence there and the princely side of india which did have native in quotes native indian rulers they had to obviously play down their capacity and their significance and and make them look like idiots who required the the british residents active guidance uh, but the other reading that the british simultaneously gave without irony was to describe the princes as allies of the british empire so every time there was a new royal uh, you know proclamation there would be these great functions where the rajas would be lined up and they'd arrive on their elephants and often they didn't want to get on the elephants often they didn't want to look very exotic but the raj would insist on their looking the part because it 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 also wanted them as allies to justify and legitimize its own presence in india uh, so when you have the nizam of hyderabad who was a mughal vassal uh, paying homage to the to the british it, it helps also legitimize the british the other argument was that the princes were all allies of the raj and they were pillars of the empire but as i tried to show in the book these these were not necessarily very sincere allies they were i would argue false allies in that they were interested in their own interests they were keen to preserve what remained to them without further encroachments from the raj and when that was accomplished they were even capable of actively subverting the raj or rather their own official overlords they were actually uh, they were quite capable of even conspiring against them and resisting uh, imperialism in india whether it was by supporting the congress party for example with grand donations whether it was by extending support to newspapers known to be critical to the raj whether it was uh, by meeting with revolutionaries and others whether uh, by by funding universities and colleges that were known to attract young men who would then you know go out and 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 give speeches against the raj they found all kinds of interesting ways to needle the raj even though on the face of it the language was very oily and subservient in reality behind the scenes they were capable of of finding ways to thwart the british empire you know in india which is why even somebody like lord curzon who was not prone to exaggeration uh, in as late as the 1920s suspected the princes he had his run-ins with several indian rajas and and some of them they wrote i mean in fact some of them as directly as writing their own essays and articles called for a future where there wouldn't be a british raj and the british would hand over power to indians some like the maharaja of baroda would give act, you know would actively go out and give speeches in which he spoke of national government and national culture and a national identity for india Uh, so you know many of them were therefore allies on the face of it but not necessarily invested in the empire on the contrary they were capable of questioning and challenging the empire certainly the game of thrones um far predates uh the recent hbo series um <laughs> what um i want to dig a little more deeply into uh this caricature that uh, that you are trying to debunk in your book actually rather than put words in your mouth let me ask you this first what would you hope would be the key takeaway from your work well i the book doesn't argue that the princes were all wonderful and great nor does it argue for monarchy to come back or the princely states to return or any of that the principal argument of the book is that we must look at the princes as political actors not as 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 museum exhibits who sat in silks and and fancy ornaments and garments and and looked exotic uh, they were political actors they were political figures and more importantly their states were political spaces as well 
as I said earlier, it, it wasn't like the princes were in complete control of their states. Rajput Raja would not only have to deal with pressures coming from above the British, but also challenges to his own authority from his subordinate chieftains and vassals. So the British had a system of indirect rule with the Rajas. Some of the Rajas had their own systems within, where they, they had vassals and chieftains who would question their authority. The same Rajput Rajas would also have to deal with tribal unrest periodically, because there were tribes within their realms, which had not been entirely co-opted, which were not under their control completely. And tribal unrest could threaten royal power because it could also end up fanning into British territory and upsetting the British, thereby inviting intervention. They had to deal with peasant uprisings in, in Rajputana because the ruling Rajput elite and the peasants were of different groups and different castes. In a state like Mysore, for example, again, it's a political space because you have the Raja, you have the British, you have a, a Brahmin bureaucracy, who many of whom were, many of these Brahmins were not from the state. They were, in quotes, foreigners from elsewhere who came and dominated the state bureaucracy. And you had two groupings of peasants, the Vokaligas and the Lingayats or the Virashaivas, who to this day uh, play a, a huge role in, in local Karnataka politics in that part of India. So by no means is their is their current political influence a very recent affair. It actually goes back into princely times, and how all of these factors needed to be balanced by the raja. And a raja could be toppled when several of his own uh, internal subordinates could conspire and and stand against him. So again, the point is the rajas were political actors, and they're ruling. They were ruling over political spaces, and we must give the states that kind of importance instead of relegating them to footnotes, which is often done when you talk of Indian history, because the emphasis is chiefly on British India or British ruled India and the nationalist struggle and what was happening there. My argument is that we must also look at the princely states, because what was happening there can tell us a, a great deal, not just about what happened in the past, but also about things that affect politics and, and, and democracy even in present day India. Uh, people's voting patterns, people's religious identities, communalism and politics, casteism, a lot of these things can be traced uh, into princely dynamics and the politics within princely states, where often the foreigner or the enemy was not necessarily the British man or the white man, but it was entirely on the basis of these internal parameters that politics was done. So I think the princely states, if, if you know, so far they haven't received much attention. My argument is that if we have 40% of India under princely rule, perhaps we can give a proportionate amount of attention to princely India so that we can have a richer understanding of modern Indian history. And so um, if, if one were to say, look, um, you know, this is fantastic work, you've documented um, a, a great deal of the inner workings of these princely states, as you call them, um, um, certainly it would be the case that these were political actors embroiled with the various uh, issues that arise with any um, with any political office. Now, who would have us believe otherwise? It, it, it's the existing literature, you know. I, I as I state in the introduction, uh, I think it's Barbara Ramosak who, in one of her books, talks about how the Cambridge Economic History of India, in 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 hundreds and hundreds of pages, devotes less than twenty, I think, to the princely states, which is hugely disproportionate because the fact is that India's most industrially forward, educationally forward, and often socially uh, more advanced uh, areas were often the princely states. And there's a logic and economics behind this for the simple reason that because the British took charge of their military affairs, a lot of the money that would have gone into maintaining defense forces was, was saved by the princely governments who would invest this in industrialization, in, in education, and all kinds of other areas, which is why their territories sometimes 
surpassed even British territories. And yet, in something like the Cambridge Economic History of India, there isn't that much of a focus on them. Uh, Mysore, for example, was India's most industrially advanced area. It had not only gold mines and iron and steel works and other kinds of factories, but also one of the world's biggest dams in the early 20th century. Its rulers actually made a cult out of this idea of industrialization as a, as a kind of political statement. And, and to not have that kind of experience, to have not have that history included in, in, in broader conversations around India's economic history is quite tragic. The other thing is that although in the, in the recent past, there has been a growing interest in the princely states, it's still a very small number of people working on them. It was in the 70s that, you know, uh, scholars like Robin Jeffrey, James Manor, they started working on the princely states. But since then, you can count perhaps 10 or 12 people who've who produce serious studies on the princely states because it's for some reason it still remains an area that is understudied. Uh, I myself have only picked up five states here and certain aspects of those five states. Uh, and that alone yielded such a rich harvest in terms of the kind of information, the kind of dynamics that found away here. Just imagine if you look at all 100 princely states, if you start looking seriously at them and, and start you know, linking those dynamics, not just, you know, maybe with present day India, with what was happening in British India at the time, it would, I think, uh, be to our benefit, which at the moment, that kind of investment hasn't been made in the princely states. So um, how do I phrase this? Um, so for some reason, this has been neglected. The agency of these obvious political actors has been neglected by scholarship. Uh, would you care to conjecture as to why that's been the case? I think partly because in India at any rate, because after independence, the conversation was largely about the national struggle. It was about the freedom struggle. And there was this construction, construction of a kind of nationalist history of India where the princes were cast aside as allies of the Raj. And again, this is interesting because it was not as though they were loyal to the British. On the contrary, nationalists in the beginning, as I said earlier, they were very fond of the princes. In fact, as late as the 1930s, Gandhi was very hesitant to interfere in the princely states. He used to he used to praise princely rulers such as the Maharani of Travancore, the Maharaja of Baroda, uh, Sardar Vallabhai Patel, who was the man who actually ended up integrating these Indian states into the Indian Union, and then eventually uh, they dissolve off the map of India. 20 years before he did that in 1949, in the year 1929, in a speech he gave in the Mysore Maharaja's uh, territories, he actually said that, you know, Maharaj is doing such a wonderful job. If his subjects are unhappy, there must be something wrong with the subject. The same man, of course, 20 years later, uh, changes that opinion, partly because in the final two decades of British rule, the Rajas did become repressive. Many of them became highly authoritarian and dictatorial, and there was violence also in the States. Because as the political chessboard started shifting, as the sand started shifting, and it became clear slowly that the British would eventually leave India, the question of what to do with the princely states became more and more of a serious consideration. And the Congress party and the younger flank, Nehru and, the, and his contemporaries, they were not very keen on maintaining the princely states. Although officially till the mid-19, even late 1930s, the princes had a seat at the table. They could have carved out a future. They did not coordinate. They became more and more repressive with the result that all their friendly relations with the Congress for, say, 50, 60 years were eclipsed by the final 15, 20 years in which the Congress and the Rajas ended up on the wrong side of each other. And that has ultimately determined the place of the princely states in Indian imagination in general. Uh, and, and after independence by the 1960s, with Indira Gandhi's socialist turn, she abolishes the privy purse, which was these pensions, these grand pensions that were given to the ex-rulers. 
it became a bad thing to to even talk about royalty because royalty was seen as backward it was seen in fact i begin the book with a quote by indira gandhi where she says that if you look at the the achievements of all of the india's royals you'll find a a, a grand zero which is not entirely true it's it's actually quite blatantly wrong to say that but uh, that was the political climate as a result of which combined with nationalist history combined with the fact that the emphasis moved to what was happening british ruled india uh, the rajas you know ended up uh, being neglected they were they were reduced again by indians themselves to that old caricature and to allies of the raj even though as i argue in the book things were far more complicated than that so why don't you walk us through the structure of the book the book begins with an introduction which puts across the broad argument of the book and it also ends with an epilogue which reiterates that argument um then it picks five chapters which is um the way it works is the first chapter the first two chapters actually are on travancore and travancore is basically where ravi varma the artist was born and i and he received his first sort of his his first patron the maharaja of travancore's ruler of that state so i use the first chapter to broadly construct and introduce the uh, the artist himself as well as construct uh, the history of the state and explain the, the circumstances in which the state was in the 1850s which was fairly perilous years for the state it could have been absorbed uh, into british india the next chapter really looks at the uh, two travancore rulers and how they negotiated these pressures by you know anglicizing their appearance while also staying traditional in terms of their rituals etc while picking up the english language even though they remain remain fairly conservative malayalis uh, and and so on interesting ways by which they converted good governance into a means by which to reduce uh, interference from the british so those are the that's the first big chapter in the book the next is is on the state of pudukottai pudukottai is a small state in tamil country so it's it's east of travancore which is on the west coast and a, a divan or a, a minister from travancore ends up going out to so in again in quotes rescue pudukottai because pudukottai is facing its own set of pressures of course slightly different from travancore the ruling family comes from a very interesting caste that the british called robber caste you know they were a, a band of thieves that that's the kind of background the rulers came from so there were interesting cultural dynamics there to begin with and of course there was pressure on the rulers not just to bureaucratize and modernize as travancore had done but also to brahmanize because the rulers were seen as uh, belonging to a certain caste that was not very inspiring to the, to the new sensibilities that were coming up in that era and they had to therefore sanskritize themselves and change their appearance and their identity in great measure then i moved to baroda because ravi varma so he's from the 1862 until 1880 he's in travancore late 1870s for the first time he leaves the state briefly to paint in pudukottai in 1881 he goes to the state of baroda which is the next big chapter where i really focus on an individual rather than the broader dynamics uh, because this individual was one of the, the british raj's fiercest princely critics and i use that chapter to convey how you know there was a, this was a kingdom where you have maratha rulers from elsewhere in india who came and 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 governed gujarati subjects so there was politics was already complicated because of that and you know how the british tried to control the minority administration when the prince was a young child uh, tried to shape him and and sort of tailor him into a into a certain kind of ruler how he resisted and ultimately broke through most of those uh those those intellectual shackles that were placed around him and became very much his own man a founder of the congress a meter of revolutionaries and things like that so that's the next chapter after that we return again to travancore uh to to ravi varma's personal life because his as i said his granddaughters became maharani's of travancore 
And it was about the internal workings of a court, gender issues and how uh, Victorian morality ended up, uh, especially Travancore was also a matrilineal court and how Victorian morality ended up upsetting some of those uh, cultural elements in that state. After which we moved to Mysore and Udaipur. Mysore for uh, the, the, the method by which uh, Mysore's Rajas, you know, sort of marked their personality was to focus on industrialization. But I also tell the story of, an, uh, of a 19th century Raja who fought this long legal battle with the British and lobbied people even in London to, uh, for, his, for, the, for the restoration of the state because the British had almost taken over that state. And then we end in Udaipur. Udaipur is what you know Indians often call a feudal state, completely unmodernized. In fact, its ruler was actively against modernizing. He, for instance, when people suggested he construct roads, he said, "Why? Because you know car tracks have worked perfectly well for a thousand years. What is this huge obsession with roads?" Uh, but again, the Rajput order and and the fact that the British were actually very very coy with the Rajputs. Uh, even though this was a bad ruler, this was not a very capable, efficient administrator. And on the face of it, elsewhere in India, they would have toppled this man very early on. But because he was a Rajput and he, he, he marshaled the cultural capital he had very shrewdly, for decades and decades and decades, they could neither bully him, nor push him, nor depose him. And ultimately, it was tribal unrest from underneath that forced his removal from power. So the book ends there. And then, of course, the, the epilogue follows. But each of these states offers, in my view, a, a distinct glimpse of regional history, as well as articulating the larger point, which is that there is no standard princely state. Each princely state has a unique set of dynamics working within. And while there are certain broad areas where you would find that there are common elements, there's also enough uh, divergence from the norm for, for us to study these princely states on an individual basis as well. That's why the five states plus uh, the, the introduction and the epilogue, which make the broader argument in the book. Who would you say might be most interested in diving into your book? I think students of history in general, uh, especially Indian history, South Asian history. I think people interested in kingship, uh, state formation, modernization under the British Raj, uh, this whole idea of progress that the British promoted you know, in the Victorian era, especially the, the post-1857 period. I think it, it's a fairly diverse set of readers I would expect who would enjoy the book because it's written firstly for an audience uh, that's large. It's not written for experts alone. And I, I mean, I hope it reads that way. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that these are the people working on these themes would, I think, find the book interesting. Without question, it reads that way. Um, the, the the content is fascinating, not because I happen to um, uh, study kingship, but it's it's fascinating. It's obviously a neglected area. Um, and while I've read a, a number of, of fairly accessible monographs for a larger public, there's something specific and unique about your style that I can't quite articulate. But it's it it it's 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 such that you are a natural storyteller. Like you seem to be quite able to tell a story with the data, which, as somebody who enjoys studying stories, you know. There's some. There's a dimension there. It has. A, it has a, a. You have a very unique style, and I've read a number of, of monographs. So I'm not sure if that's that's conscious or it's internalized. Maybe we can say a, a word about that if you don't mind. Um, I'm not sure actually. I mean, I do enjoy telling stories. I I think the, the style I prefer is to make sure that your research is very solid, but the 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 way you put the research across need not be dense. It need not be uninviting. I think it can be made inviting. 
uh, entirely on the basis of how you structure the narrative. And yes, I suppose I, I do enjoy telling stories, even though, you know, uh, this is, and this is often the case, even with my first book, The Ivory Throne, a lot of people said, oh my God, it was uh, so interesting to read. And, you know, the story moved very fast, it was very fast paced, etc. But it, the book is also very dense when it comes to the footnotes and the kind of sources that are used. So I tried to bridge both, which is, you know, what I would like to think is very strong research with an accessible, interesting way of writing so that you can woo more people into history as a subject. Because often I find, uh, you know, when you do these talks, when you go to these literature festivals in India, for example, you find kids who attend and then say that, you know, they love the talk, but they're very intimidated by history books. And this is, I suppose, my way of trying to counter that, which is to say, uh, there's no need to be intimidated. You can both do your research well and tell a story well. And these are not contradictory to each other. Without question, without question, um, storytelling is crucial to rendering accessible anything, meaning making in general. And so it, 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 in my view, there's no, um, there's no direct link. Like it's fully possible to have a well-researched book, uh, which tells a fantastic story. And uh, you know, yes. uh, other other books may have one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive. But for me, the sweet spot is, in scholarship is something well researched, original, but something where it's such that you're giving an engaging talk or lecture, where where an audience can get really. It's it's as if it's as if they're engaging narrative because you're pulling them along with a story about the data. And there's, there's something yes. in your style. I know that everyone has a different style, obviously, but having covered a number of books for this podcast, there is something there, which in the back of my brain, I thought I'd, I'd ask you, I was going to ask you after the call, but I might as well ask you now, do you, or would you write narrative? Is that a, a goal or, or a dream of yours? Um, I, I do think of myself as a writer as well, because I remember in my teens, I wrote something and my father said, oh, you can write, you know, you should take that up and think seriously about writing. So I think what I seem to have been able to do is combine uh, a, a flair for writing with an interest and an appetite for research. I, I'm at home most in an archive, in, which is where I'm actually recording this podcast from. I'm at the British Library in London. This is really home. I love spending time with, with, with material, with you know, being here. Uh, but all the same, I also do think of myself as a writer, as a result of which I think combining the two comes pretty naturally to me. It's, I think I, it's important for me not just to speak to fellow researchers and scholars, but also to speak, I suppose, to an audience, which is that, you know, I want a larger number of people to engage. And there is, I suppose, in that sense, a conscious uh, desire to combine the two. But other than that, I don't know if I, what other type of writing I'll do. For now, I'm very content, very happy doing what I'm doing, which is research and writing and, and combining it, uh, what the future holds, I don't know. Right now, of course, I have, I have to finish my PhD thesis, which is uh, by next year. And I think that's the only thing on my, on my plate for now. You've, you've, you've preempted my, my typical final question, which is what are you working on now? And uh, is it fair to say that that's the, the thesis or do you have some other book on the back burner somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> no, the thesis is the main thing now. Uh, there's this other project I've been working on for years and years, but that's, you know, it's still in the stage where I'm collecting material. It's a rather ambitious project. That's why I'm also superstitious. I don't talk about things till they're done. Uh, the thesis is for now the main focus because I've got, I'm, I'm at what we call writing up stage in the, in the UK. So um, that's going to take up most of my months and, and, and the next whole year and, and all my time ahead. 
Oh, without question. For the, for those of you listening who um, um, may be a little further removed from um, uh, from from academia, uh, for for most mortals, uh, a doctoral program is all consuming and daunting as is. <laughs> so, so, but to do one and then do something like a book or, or some sort of other major project, you know, this is. Um, this is for those who are, um, 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 how can I say, quite talented. Uh, uh, for most, a uh, PhD program is plenty <laughs> to occupy one's time with. <laughs> so congratulations for getting this book out. Um, we will have you back Thank on the you. podcast. Um, I suspect this will not be our final conversation on the podcast. So we'll have to have you back when next, when next you buy the book. No, no, no. Um, I, I look forward to it. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with uh, Manu Esplai on his brand new 2021 Juggernaut book, um, pun intended, uh, with Juggernaut, uh, called False Allies, India's Maharajas in the Age of Ravi Verma. Until next time, uh, keep listening, keep reading, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the agency of Indian kingship. Take care.